Human history, like a river, will keep moving forward with moments of both calm waters and huge waves. We have before us the opportunity to forge a new world order. The problem with modern-day unipolarity is precisely that. The West is leading Ukraine down the Primrose Path. We don't have enough tanks, we don't have enough vessels, we don't have enough planes. To bring chip productions here to the U.S. This is multipolarity, charting the rise of the new multipolar world order. Let's get this spooky Halloween special um, going. We thought we thought that it would be a very good idea, given it's Halloween, and given the state of given the state of the world at the moment, and given some of the scary conflicts and um, even scarier flashpoints, which uh, don't seem to be mentioned these days, that we would cover the scariest. Uh, geopolitical scenarios. How could current conflict escalate? Which pathways would they take? And where could they ultimately lead? And also, which flashpoints around the world uh, could also erupt uh, and lead to some pretty um, horrifying uh, scenarios? Um, and what better time of the world, uh, what better time of the year, as I say, to do this than Halloween? Uh, so, first of all, we have uh, to discuss this this evening. We have uh, Philip Pilkington. Philip is an, an economist and analyst. He writes extensively around the Internet and uh, even in uh, newspapers these days. He writes for the New York Post regularly. Uh, he has a column for unheard.com. Uh, but he's also written in places like um, uh, the post-liberal Substack, um, American Conservative, uh, and The Critic. We also have uh, Malcolm Keyune. Um, again, apologies for the surname, a.k.a. Tinksorg, a.k.a. Sword Mercury. Uh, Malcolm, as well as being a uh, infamous, renowned uh, Twitter slash X shitposter, is also one of the more uh, thoughtful and erudite commenters on uh, geopolitics, um, societal trends, and uh, long-term doom-mongering. So, Philip and Malcolm, welcome to both of you. Uh, I'd like to say this time, uh, the last spaces that we did got a little bit out of hand. Uh, we had a few uh, people who uh, got involved who really were very insistent and made some points which were, to be kind, questionable. So I think this time what we're going to do is, as we go through some of these scenarios, if listeners could just... Um, reply to um, this uh, Twitter uh, space or X spaces uh, post, which you can do and put your questions there. I'll see it and answer it. Alternatively, um, you can go to the uh, ADM Collingwood Twitter account at ADM Collingwood and send me a direct message and I'll be able to answer it. So if we could just do it that way, um, I, th I think that's the best and most effective way forward. So let's get started. Uh, perhaps an interesting, or, or perhaps the most um, uh, the most germane place to start is in the Middle East, where in Israel and Palestine we have a conflict. And I think it's very easy to see a way in which this could escalate in a very serious way indeed. Um, it, it's perfectly plausible 
that uh, Hezbollah will eventually not be able to hold themselves back and will uh, really go at Israel <clears throat> with the um, with the kitchen sink. At that stage, it's difficult to imagine the U.S. not getting involved, um, and it's easy to see a country like Iran thinking that uh, it would rather not lose Hezbollah, which is its greatest strategic asset in the region. Um, and if the U.S. then goes after Iran, uh, we can see imagine some very nasty comments indeed. So um, perhaps let's talk to Tingsorg first, uh, Malcolm first about this, who has uh, been tweeting furiously about this subject for two or three weeks now. And then perhaps we'll move on to Philip after that. Uh, all right. So can you hear me? Perfectly, sir. Uh, Perfectly. Yeah. So I just want to apologize. I've been sick with the flu recently, so I might be experiencing some coughing fits and, and my voice isn't exactly what it used to be. Um, but Don't worry, it gives you a lovely I'll kind of to... gravelly, a gravelly voice. It gives you certain gravitas and seasoned sound, Malcolm. Yes, well, you know. It I might even be a my... bit spooky. Yeah, I, I thought my uh, posting on the North Korean uh, issue would give me all the gravitas I needed, but I guess you know, <laughs> a little extra could, could, couldn't hurt. So regarding this, um, like this, this Middle Eastern crisis, I think the most fascinating um, dynamic, I think, that we need to keep in mind is that if you look at the July war between Israel and Hezbollah in, in southern Lebanon. About 120 IDF soldiers died. 20 tanks were knocked out, irrecoverable. Um, you know, over a thousand Lebanese civilians died, I think. But we right now have an undeclared war or, you know, like a, um, an ongoing armed conflict on Israel's northern border where uh, Hezbollah claims 120 uh, casualties on the Israeli side, so dead and wounded, and 12 tanks just knocked out. Add to this, like, very sort of uh, widespread property destruction to, like, surveillance systems and so on. And you already have a, a conflict that is inflicting casualties that is, quite rapidly approaching like July war levels on the Israeli side. And the entire debate in the West is when will Hezbollah attack? And after this speech, everyone was like, okay, well, you know, danger is over. They're not going to attack. I find this quite interesting because it speaks to like a, a complete failure of deterrence. If you threw a hand grenade at the Israelis in the early 2000s, there would have been hell to pay. And at this point, Hezbollah is launching, I think they started launching rockets with <clears throat> explosive payloads of, you know, 200 kilos or whatever on IDF basis. And the Israelis are commenting on Secretary General Nasrallah, like you, you make boring speeches and you hide in a bunker Okay, well, what about the dead Israelis? Like, isn't that kind of a bigger problem here? So in this conflict where everyone is making all of these huge threats, 
say like the Israelis say, we will level Beirut, we will, you know, salt the earth after we're done. What we're actually seeing is a far more, I would say like you're actually seeing both the Israelis and the Americans basically admitting that deterrence is more or less dead. And I think this gives a very interesting dynamic to this entire conflict in the sense that um, what these actors are trying to find out right now is pretty much how bad the damage to like the, the Tehran system is. Um, on the American side, American bases in Iraq, in Syria, uh, have been attacked, I think, over 50 times in three weeks. At, at the start, um, CENTCOM, United States Central Command, which is the military command that sort of oversees, coordinates U.S. forces in the Middle East. At the start of this conflict, every time a U.S. base was attacked, CENTCOM uh, put out this little news bulletin saying, we were attacked by two drones. We shot down one. One crashed uselessly, like into terrain. There are no casualties. And then they had to admit that one person died from a heart attack, like a civilian contractor, I think, died from a heart attack while seeking shelter during one of those attacks. But otherwise, you know, no property damage, no casualties, no wounded, nothing. After a while, CENTCOM was forced to admit, oh, sorry, those attacks that inflicted zero damage, they actually damaged a hangar, and we lost um, an aircraft from this. But also, we have 24 people who are in var- like injured, some pretty severely. So all of these attacks we told you about with zero casualties, sorry, there are dozens of casualties from those attacks. And this was you know, a week ago, I think, at this point, there's been several dozen more attacks, some of them fairly destructive, it seems like. But CENTCOM has essentially stopped giving updates. There are no comments whatsoever on the scope of the attack, whether they are successful or not, um, whether U.S. soldiers are being injured or killed. You only basically have Russians saying, wow, looks, looks, like, there, looks like there's a huge explosion at the American base again. These Americans seem to be in a, in a spot of trouble right now. And then nothing. Like, there's nobody commenting on this. And I think, like, once you put these two dynamics on the Israeli northern border and on this string of U.S. bases all across the Middle East, what you're basically seeing now is the first week of this conflict, you had Americans and Israelis saying, like, okay, it's time to... You know, it's time to turn Lebanon into a parking lot. It's time to strike Iran. It's time to topple the crazy mullahs. Like, we're back, we're strong. It's time to finish the work that um, the Bush administration started. And at this point, I think everyone has reconsidered. Everyone is starting to realize that, like, we're staring down the barrel of what could potentially be a military catastrophe, not just, you know, human rights, Israel losing support in, in, in the Western world or, or being accused of committing war crimes. But I think people are starting to seriously fear an actual military catastrophe, like a, a geopolitical quagmire of, 
almost unprecedented proportions for the U.S. in the post-war era. So what, I mean, what specifically, uh, Malcolm, would that involve? Uh, I mean, from my perspective, I think it's a a positive sign for the world that the U.S. has no interest in escalating when they're not reporting on this sort of thing. Because if they did want to escalate, if some of our worst fears about um, the eagerness of certain parts of the U.S. foreign policy establishment to use this as, as an excuse to finally settle scores in the Middle East were true, I think they would be, you know, making these um, disparate uh, missile attacks on U.S. bases in places like the north of Syria and in Iraq a bigger deal. You know, they would be playing up the kind of the death and destruction done. We must do something about this. You know, they would be trying to make it into a casus belli, whereas they're not. And I think that's a kind of positive thing. However... Um, like you say, it could involve uh, the U.S. getting bogged down yet again in a kind of a Middle East desert quagmire. So, you know, what do you see the consequences of the current situation where it appears that U.S. deterrence, it might be working in terms of, I don't know, not drawing Iran in or not drawing Hezbollah in with, uh, you know, 100% of what they could do, uh, but it appears not to be deterring, um, you know, one or two missile attacks every week, right? Um, so where do you see this leading? I think that like, we, we kind of have to separate the interests of the United States and Israel here um, because I think that already you see the dynamic of the United States having realized just how massively um, unmanageable, I think is the term I'm looking for, how unmanageable a a wildfire spreading across the Middle East would be for American interests. Because Israel is a tiny country. It has, you know, military bases inside of Israel, kind of easy to keep track of. But for the U.S., if you have this sort of generalized, you know, warfare against it, uh, it doesn't have forces positioned. It doesn't have, like, the political support to... um, to actually defend itself, I think, in, 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 the, in the long term. And so that brings me to the first part of the, to answer your question. Like, if America gets it put in a position where it's unfeasible for it to defend all of its bases, because at this point, the Americans have counterattacked with airstrikes. Uh, there's been one time where they sort of made a big deal of it. And you have to realize this was like the most pathetic airstrike in the history of airstrikes. It was two F-16 planes dropping, you know, small diameter bombs on what the Americans said were like, we think these are warehouses that Iran uses to store its weapons. And they bombed uh, locations in Syria. Well, okay, the most sort of active uh, military group that's attacking the U.S. is located in Iraq. So you're not exactly necessarily deterring the Iraqis by attacking a warehouse in Syria. And everyone that I saw on like Arabic Twitter kind of just laughed at this airstrike. But the problem the Americans are facing is they're being stung by hornets left and right. And you can always follow the hornet back and kick the entire hornet's nest to rattle the first hornet. But what if his friends kind of don't appreciate you, you know, rattling the nest? Uh, 
suddenly you have 40 hornets that are interested in stinging you. And so uh, retaliation for the U.S. is a path, path fraught with massive, massive danger right now, which is why they're not doing it. But what this leads to potentially is a situation where the U.S. is forced to abandon a lot of its uh, military bases um, in, in areas like Iraq and Syria. And the U.S. is caught in this problem right now of essentially being an empire experiencing massive overstretch. It has a massively polarized sort of paralyzed political class. Um, and it's got these massive budget deficits that it can only really, like it can only really keep the situation together by increasingly borrowing from the rest of the world or printing money. Like this is not a stable situation politically in, in, in the domestic sense if the U.S. just has to admit that it's too weak to actually deal with, you know, uh, Iraqi Hezbollah, for example. Like if, if uh, these weird, you know, Ahmed, the dead terrorist and his friends, like, like these Hajis or whatever, that we kicked their asses 20 years ago, if they suddenly say, well, you know, America, you had your time, but you're too weak, go home, sober up, like you're not an empire anymore. Like the consequences of that could be absolutely massive. It's it's not really about these bases like Al-Tan for whatever in Iraq on the border with Syria. It's about the U.S. position as a military superpower, which is why the U.S. is interested in Taiwan as well. Like It's not about semiconductors. It's not about democracy on Taiwan. It's about the U.S. being number one. If you get ejected from the Middle East violently by people flying you know, $20,000 drones at you, and your air defenses are depleted and you're forced to admit that, sorry, we don't have the industrial base to really produce air defenses so we can defend our bases. Like this, this could be a complete catastrophe for the United States. Um, so that's one part of the, the answer here. And, and the other is fairly like it's quicker. And that's when we're talking about Israel. Israel is caught in a massively problematic situation right now because according to Israeli politicians themselves and members of the Israeli public, members like people living in the settlements and so on in the Gaza envelope and on the northern border, unless Israel establishes some sort of convincing deterrence against Hamas and uh, Hezbollah, like there's no point in living on the border to Lebanon if these guys are, are basically as strong as the IDF and have demonstrated that they're willing to attack you whenever they want, and Israel has demonstrated that, like, okay, well, these guys are a bit too scary. They have too many missiles. We can't really go all in against them. Um, I think that this leads to a massive political crisis inside Israel, and people starting to question whether the entire like state project is still viable or not. And this is not just conjecture on my part. There have been like interviews and polling done with settlers saying that like unless these 
enemies of Israel are defeated convincingly, we're not moving back. So, like, long story short, for both Israel and for the United States, the massive sort of crisis looming in the distance brought on by the military situation is an internal political and in some ways also economic crisis. Philip Pilkington, let's talk through the first one of those, which is the, the U.S. position uh, globally and how this conflict could affect that. Yeah, well, I mean, let's start, yeah, with the Middle East, I suppose. Um, I think what we saw over the past few weeks is basically what we saw at the start of the Ukraine war as well. Um, a lot of people had a lot of expectations, made a lot of conjectures and kind of knew what was going to happen next when they didn't, right? In this situation, so in the Ukraine situation, it was obviously, oh, Putin's going in, he's going to take Kiev, that's the goal, et cetera, et cetera. And that turned out not to be the case. So maybe we should learn a lesson from that this time. Um, the conjecture here, I think the kind of core conjecture that, that has not proved to be wrong, but I think was definitely overstated, was that um, the Hamas attack on Israel was pre-planned. It was pre-planned, obviously, because it was quite well prepared and everything like that. But that it was basically like Iran, right? Iran like picked up the phone to the Hamas leader and said, you know, do your thing. And then like a big war is going to break out. And that was the kind of core conjecture. Okay, Hamas have ties to Iran, which they do, obviously. I, I mean, I don't know that for a fact, but it seems pretty credible. Um, therefore, they're totally controlled by Iran, and therefore anything that they do is part of Iranian grand strategy. And if you believe that, personally, I didn't know. I, I'm very skeptical of these things now. I don't know what, I know what I don't know, which is always a good situation in these uh, circumstances. And the reality is that you don't know a lot. So don't make any assumptions. It's a possibility that, you know, Iran could have some big game plan and a big war is going to break out within two weeks. Um, but it's also a possibility that they, that they weren't in control of this. Maybe they knew about it, but they weren't in control of it fully and they didn't have a big game plan. I think that's proved, not proved, but that looks more likely to be the case. The Hamas attack was Hamas, right? They saw a, a weakening, uh, um, they saw the West geostrategically weak, uh, overstretched a lot of the things Malcolm said, a lot of the things that we talked about on the podcast, and they saw an opportunity to kick the hornet's nest, to spark off a conflict. They also, you know, Hamas and the Palestine question have been on the back burner for a long time. A lot of the Arab and other Muslim countries weren't talking about it that much anymore. Well this will get them talking about it. So I think it was basically an autonomous act by Hamas. Maybe there was some aspects of Iran or something involved. Who knows? Nobody knows. But for the most part, it feels to me like it was, uh, it was a fairly autonomous act. And now leaders in the Middle East and in the West, and obviously in Israel, are effectively responding to that initial act. And so when people said um, that Nasrallah, that's his name, the leader of Hezbollah, oh, he's going to come out, it was yesterday, and declare a big holy war. Um, that's kind of part of the idea that there was some, like, big plan or something. And I just think there isn't a big plan, and people should just get that out of their head. There, there isn't a big plan. Hamas did an attack. Now the rest of the world is responding to that. So it's much more interesting, rather than looking for this 
kind of like you're on the chalkboard, you know, drawing your kind of conspiracy theory up. Oh, and next Hezbollah is going to jump in and then Iran's going to jump in. We've all been a little bit prey to that over the past couple of weeks. It's, it's, it's kind of interesting and you can kind of be like, you know, it's nice to make predictions or whatever. I've kind of laid off it on Twitter or anything like that because I'm like, I don't know. But, you know, I think it's probably better to step back and away from that framework and just look at this for what it is. Hamas has done an attack. The attack's goal was almost certainly to draw the IDF into Gaza. There's almost no doubt about this at this stage. And it's basically let the chips fall where they may. And the situation from here on in is extremely unpredictable. No one can predict it. Hamas can't predict it. Hezbollah can't predict it. The Israelis can't predict it. You can't predict it. I can't predict it. The Americans can't predict it. No one can predict it. But it's lit, lit an absolute fire in the Middle East. There's absolutely no doubt about that. And it, it's, it's everywhere now. I mean, these kind of Hamas videos and successful strikes and Hezbollah videos. And Hezbollah, like, who was listening to the Hezbollah leader last week or, or what, a month ago? Like, I'd never even heard of the guy. Now everyone's listening to him, okay? So that's kind of like, that's probably how this is going to evolve. And I'd imagine that's probably what most of the leaders in the Middle East are thinking. They're thinking, we don't want to, you know, we don't want to try and get the Turks to send their big army down to Syria or something like that. What we probably want to do is stir the pots that we have available, you know, stir the proxies, allow just organically a lot of these fighters who haven't had much to do since the, you know, ISIS period and the destabilization of Iraq, they're going to just jump on board with this stuff because they have nothing to do. And they, you know, they see all these war videos or whatever, and they're going to go, well, I want to go and do that now. And so the whole thing is just going to spread like a brush fire. I, I agree with what you said, Andrew, that the U.S. is trying to tamp this down because they don't want what's going to happen to happen. But I don't think they really control it at this stage. And everyone's saying, oh, they don't control the Israelis and so on. And I don't think they do. And that's probably a fair assessment. But they don't, they don't control the broader situation. They don't control the, the, the kind of um, organic growth of movements in the Middle East. I mean, if we learned anything from ISIS, we should have learned that. Very large, powerful militia groups with a capacity to set up states even, claim territory, set up little military states like ISIS did. These things can happen pretty easily in the Middle East. And ISIS didn't require as much of a kick as what we're currently seeing in Israel, with the Israelis going in, um, dumping all this ordinance on the Gaza Strip and the entire Muslim world going absolutely crazy. Like Erdogan was out, we covered the speech on last, last week's podcast, Erdogan comes out and basically backs Hamas. He says it's not a terrorist organization, it's a Mujahideen group, they're engaged in holy war, they're blah, 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 right? Like you didn't have that when ISIS formed. So like this whole thing's going to just keep stirring and stirring. Even if America can convince the Israelis to pull back a bit, which they might be able to do, remains to be seen. But even if they do, I don't think this is going to stop. Yeah, well, what concerns me and, and what I'd like to throw out to perhaps uh, Malcolm um, or even you, Philip, <clears throat> is that I can imagine a scenario in which there's an attack on a, a U.S. base or a situation where once Israel starts to go into Gaza City, they seem to have made very good progress in the more 
the non-urban areas of the Gaza Strip, but they haven't really moved into Gaza City yet. Once they start going into there, they get bogged down, and Hezbollah used as an opportunity to attack in the north, or Hezbollah sees the kind of the devastation, they can't hold themselves back any longer. Uh, either one of those situations where, you know, Hezbollah gets involved or a U.S. base is attacked and, you know, the U.S. government and, uh, and media simply can't play it down or cover it up because there are some deaths or serious equipment losses and the U.S. gets involved, then we're in the kind of following position. Either the U.S. uses, you know, what is, uh, you know, I know we're all fairly sceptical of... Um, the survivability of aircraft carrier strike groups here, but, you know, they still have like, you know, 50 fighter, fighter bombers uh, each. Um, there's still a significant amount of firepower there. In addition to the ground attack missiles that come from the, uh, the cruisers, destroyers, frigates, and submarines. So it's quite awesome amount of firepower. If that then, um, you know, takes its toll on Hezbollah, uh, Iran immediately starts getting involved because, as I said earlier on, Hezbollah is Iran's kind of major strategic asset in the region. Certainly it is for Syria as well. Or the U.S. fails to get on top of it and Israel is still being rolled over. Um, you know, U.S. Uh, bases in the area and perhaps even some of its naval assets are being attacked and damaged and sunk and destroyed, uh, in which case, you, you know, the U.S. you know really has to escalate. I mean, it's a Malcolm mentioned the um, the domestic political situation. It is, after all, an election year in the United States next year. It would seem to me absolutely impossible for an incumbent president to win uh, in a situation where they're getting their backsides handed to them um, by you know Hezbollah, for example, or Hezbollah in Iran. Uh, so both of those situations you know, would actually concern me and it, it would be a step up the escalation ladder. And then, of course, we have Iran itself where, you know, an attack on Iran would be, you know, so difficult to undertake given the, you know, it's not, shall we be kind and say it's not guaranteed that the Saudis would give them basing and overflight rights this time. <laughs> um, so, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's possible to imagine things like oil, oil embargoes. It's possible to imagine much fuller uh, attacks, uh, kind of shock and awe style attacks on Iran, if that's at all possible. Um, all of these things are, you know, really very concerning. It's it's it, it's not pie in the sky. It's it's kind of, um, you know, you can see the escalation possibility there. Uh, all right, I guess I'll start. Um, unless you want to go first, Philip. No, no, go ahead. Yeah, I, I think that regarding the United States, what one has to understand right now, and, you know, I hate to pay compliments to the great Satan, uh, but I, I, I feel myself forced to do it for the simple reason that, like, the Americans right now are not really, if you discount certain politicians who are always on this beat, like Lindsey Graham and so on, um, the Americans are not really interested in much escalation for the simple reason that they're staring down, like they are aware of the military realities. Yes, the U.S. has a lot of cruise missiles. The problem is that within the context, the theater of the Middle East, uh, 
the Iranians have more cruise missiles. And sure, you could move all of the cruise missiles that the U.S. has and, you know, empty out the arsenal. And then in the local region, you would have, you might not even achieve some sort of like overmatch. You might need to do that to achieve parity in the long run due to um, this specter of, of resupply from China or Russia, which is very real. But like the Americans aren't going to do that because that's more or less admitting that the time of global empire is over if you expend all your resources to fight a country of 90 million. But if you don't do that, um, there is a certain level of escalation dominance that the Iranians have. And that's just if you look at the Iranians, like the U.S. does not have the ability to really um, defend all of its bases against concerted attack. Um, because again, the U.S. has been running sort of a Potemkin village militarily. What it would need is a lot more ground troops if it wanted to do offensive military operations. Like if you want to get rid of all of these militias lobbing rockets at you and so on, you can't do that with you know F-16s. You need to hold territory. And the U.S., like it has surged, quote unquote, like 2,000 Marines to, to the Middle East. Yeah, that's, that's great. You know, the Iranian or the Iraqi like popular mobilization forces probably have like 300 to 400,000 guys. Like sending 2,000 Marines to the region, that's nothing. And, you know, they announced that they surged an additional 300 people after that. Uh, probably just to operate like the, the air defense batteries. So, so the U.S. is not even preparing to fight. And so in that situation, if you think about like shock and awe against Iran, you're probably just going to see the U.S. doing like the U.S. path along the escalation ladder being what it has already committed to. So in the case of these bases that are quite strategically important that are being attacked constantly, the U.S. finally got off its ass and sent two F-16s to a location where it hoped nobody would get wounded and killed because that would make people madder. So they just bombed like a location, a storage area. And then they said, we're, if you promise not to attack us, we're never going to bomb you again. Like we come in peace. Like this is self-defense. If they're going to do shock and awe against Iran, they're going to, you know, light up a football field with missiles and then say, you know, look at our beautiful missiles. Look at how dangerous they are. Please, like, we come in peace. We don't want to fight. Like, the U.S. is not going to wake up like, you know, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, like switch from trying to de-escalate to trying to wage all out war. And, you know, I could be wrong about this, but for the U.S. to do that, I think it would basically need to surge more forces into the area, which it is not really doing. Um, so that's the first thing. The second thing, and this is the real escalation risk here, is Israel, because Israel is under completely different strategic imperatives. Is the Israelis are not stupid. Like they know, they can look, they can read the newspapers and they can... And, and to quote Bob Dylan, these days, you don't have to be a weatherman to tell which way the wind is blowing. Like this campaign that they're doing 
represents the exhaustion of the lost sort of political capital and sympathy in much of the Western world. Um, you're already seeing these massive sort of rifts opening up inside the Democratic Party, like Joy Reid on MSNBC was just saying, you know, the Israelis are committing war crimes, like they're bombing hospitals. Sorry, that's a war crime. She's not going to get fired for that. I don't think there's any, like, she's not going to be censored for that even. At this point, a host, a popular host on one of the biggest networks in the U.S., saying, you know, the Israelis, they're just evil doing war crimes. That's no longer beyond the pale. And the Israelis, in order to keep their state intact, they need to, um, they need to reestablish deterrence. And at this point, it's not looking good for the idea of establishing deterrence through, you know, martial might. There are these vid videos of... Um, Hamas flying drones, dropping anti-personnel grenades on these mobilized, you know, office workers huddling in big groups or whatever. And they don't seem to have a clue what's going on. There are other videos showing um, Israeli fighters or sorry, Hamas fighters running up to tanks, disabling their active protection system by placing, you know, an explosive charge on the tank. And then, you know, staging all of these ambushes and so on. The problem with these, vi like these videos might be fairly unrepresentative of warfare in Gaza right now. That's completely possible. The IDF might be much more competent and this is just like freak accidents or whatever that are being caught on film. The problem is that if the Muslim world looks at the IDF and says, like, these guys are not particularly impressive, sorry. Like, we can take them. Like, the, it doesn't make sense for Israel to continue existing as it exists today if Israel is going to be constantly mobilizing 300,000 people and then, you know, trading equally or whatever. And it's only really doing this well right now because the Americans are basically paying for their entire air force. If the Americans can't support them militarily and in terms of, you know, the defense industrial base, like the, the demographics don't make sense. So the Israelis have a very powerful incentive to try to force the issue, to try to make something happen. And at this point, I'm not sure they even know what that something is. Um, I think they just need to, um, as, as Moshe Dayan, like the one-eyed general said, Israel needs to be like a mad or rabid dog, too dangerous to approach. The Israelis have lost that. And I think that right now they are willing to reestablish that sense of being a rabid dog, too dangerous to ever mess with regardless of the consequences for like in the long term and regardless of the consequences for the United States. So the real danger of escalation here is not coming from the U.S. because the U.S. is going to slow walk up the escalation ladder. They might move up it because they have no choice, but they're not going to be rushing. They're going to take their sweet time every step they take up the escalation ladder. The Israelis will not. And, and right now, I think the U.S. is in too weak a position to really strong arm the Israelis 
in case something big happens. Uh, Philip, um, Israeli, you know, I think Malcolm is probably right there that Israel needs to reestablish some kind of deterrence here. They can't be seen to stop until they've done a serious amount of damage, like a really serious amount of damage, unfortunately. Meantime, though, in the US, is there a chance that the present administration is really caught between a rock and a half place coming into an election year, where on the one hand, they have the Democrat base, which is increasingly pro-Palestine, especially at the kind of uh, metropolitan elite level, and the kind of the student activist level. And on the other hand, they have the general uh, requirement of a US president to be seen as strong. It's, it's, you know, strong leader is always one of the most important um, factors in deciding uh, whom to vote for when it comes to presidential elections. And Biden, who started his administration with a catastrophic retreat from uh, Kabul, uh, now faces um, going into another election year at the end of his first term uh, with Israel in serious trouble. Um, Is it possible that politics in the U.S. requires an escalation, if only, if only, to try to end the conflict swiftly before Israel uh, manages to demonstrate that it truly is a rabid dog, as Malcolm put it. Yeah, well, to speak to the electoral issue first, I mean, um, so there's obviously a trade-off here. There's a balance that they have to strike between looking powerful and uh, keeping the democratic base. But the issue is that, look, who are you trying to look powerful for? You're trying to look powerful for uh, some independent voters on the edges, right? Uh, people who aren't sure between the Democrats and the Republicans, and so you have to convince them that you're kind of the best man to leave. That's only a couple of percentage points. Now, that, percentage, that, 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 that couple of percentage points can swing an election. There's no doubt about that. Independents can swing an election. But it's only a couple of percentage points. On the other side of the equation, you have your base. I mean, I really think that the, you know, I can't remember the polling. We did it, I think, last week or the week before. But whatever it is, the 20% that's like hardcore in favor of Palestine, I think they vastly... Uh, populate the Democratic Party base. And if you go into an election with your base completely unmotivated, you're in a lot of trouble, right? You're in a lot of trouble because you don't have the people to go out and knock on doors and, you know, gin up the support and have the Twitter army and all that. The other population that's becoming, I think, going to become increasingly isolated by this is African-Americans. Because if if you look subtly at how it's being portrayed in the media right now. Uh, Malcolm mentioned the Joy Reid video. For some reason, whether it's true or not, I personally don't think it's true, but for some reason in America, and to an extent in Britain as well, the Palestine issue becomes like racialized. And it becomes portrayed as the Israelis are kind of like white settlers and the Arabs are like, you know, non-white people or whatever. And to the extent that this is true, again, I'm not a proponent, doesn't really matter. That's how the Democratic Party base view it. And that's kind of the message that they start to push. And I think that could actually kind of catch on 
with the with the with the African American community if they're not careful as well. Now, if you lose your base and your mo most reliable voting pool, could, could be, because African Americans are by far the most reliable voters for the Democratic Party, if you lose those two, you've probably lost an election. On the other hand, the other group that we mentioned, which is are the independents that can swing back and forth, you may be able to win them over with other kind of promises or whatever. So I think when you kind of look at it overall, that the electoral cycle is definitely pushing for a tendency to de uh, toward de-escalation. The other point that I make is, is, I think, a really important one. That, you know, prior to the Hamas attack and the response to it, which is only, what, two or three weeks ago, three weeks ago, whatever it was, the, the multipolarity idea was taboo, I would say. I mean, I, I know for a fact a lot of people in the West, in Britain, in America, and so on, we're kind of paying attention to it. I'm not saying they're all listeners of our podcast, but if they are, please go premium, subscribe, and everything like that. But I know people were kind of paying attention to that stuff, but they were denying it at the same time. They were saying, mm, eh, no, it's not true. It's just one war. The China-Russia alliance isn't as big of a deal as people think. Russia's becoming a vassal state to China. That'll be like... I don't know, that'll improve our position globally. I, I never understood it. But they were basically denying it. But now, with that attack, the copium has run out, as the kids say. It's very, very clear. Biden, I think it was yesterday, maybe it was the day before, off-the-cuff comment at the end of a news program, um, at the end of a speech or something, I don't know what it was. And he said, oh, well, you know, there's a cycle every couple of generations where within you know, a decade or five years, the whole world changes completely, and we're in one of those cycles. And people were like, whoa, where'd that come from? Well, the great thing about Biden is he's a human leaks machine. <laughs> Biden, Biden's not all there, <laughs> and so he can't help himself. He just says stuff that is, that's rattling around his head. Now, did Joe Biden come up with that brilliant observation? No, of course he didn't. That's a reflection of what they're talking about in their meetings. Some big brain Harvard grad on, you know, some national security uh, blob thing probably came up with that. And so you're seeing increasing evidence that people are like, oh yeah, the multipolarity thing's real. I mean, I, I've had people text me who were like interested in the podcast, were reading some of the stuff I did, and they were like, I don't fully agree with you. I mean, I can see some of these dynamics. It's interesting to highlight. I pay, I pay attention to what you're saying. But, you know, ultimately, I still think we're in, the, we're in the driver's seat here. And I've got texts over the past three weeks saying, yeah, you were right. You were right about multipolarity. So I think the establishment, definitely in the US, I think the Europeans, they've caught up to it in their own way. But that was prior to this. Not so much in the UK. Last to get the message here. But in the US, I think they're definitely saying, those guys who were talking about the multipolarity thing were right. And so... Even strategically, the foreign policy blob is going to have to approach this very, very cautiously. I think that they've started to wake up to the fact that material shortages can be real. We've seen them in Ukraine. And when something breaks out in the Middle East, that becomes scary. I think they know that they don't have these surge capacities anymore. I think they can all look at the government deficit. You know, It's, near, it's over 8% of GDP in the US. And there's no recession. There's full employment. 
it's going to go up to like 14, 15% if and when there's a recession. And I think that they can also see the writing on the wall of, of actors in the world being willing to take more risky bets in this kind of environment. So I think if you put it all together, everything is pushing for the US to de-escalate. But I just don't think they can. They're embedded in the region. The incentives for the Israelis are what Malcolm said they are. I just don't think that they can do it. I think that they're, they're stuck in this quagmire that they've been involved in since you know, forever, really. I mean, it was handed over to them from the Brits, and the Brits have been there since God knows when. And they're too embedded in this. And it's something that blows up every couple of years. And this time around, it's blowing up in a much more dramatic way at the worst possible moment. And some of that, of course, is calculated on the part of the adversaries. Yeah, I mean, I, uh, just to add to that, I get the impression that the Arab countries, whilst, or, or, or I shouldn't just say Arab countries because Iran is involved in this, and that's, you know, they're not Arab, they're Persian. Uh, Turkey is involved in this, and obviously they're not uh, Arab or Persian, they're Turkic. Um, as, but I get the impression that the, that the you know the power the powers within the region uh like egypt like saudi arabia like turkey like iran like qatar they while uh, unequivocally supporting uh the palestinian cause and condemning israel's uh, reaction uh to the attack which they suffered um are also not looking for any escalation at all they might be looking to exploit the situation they might be looking to uh, push forward some of their interests, but they're not looking to escalate, it seems. Um, but before we move on from this, I, I'd just like to ask you both very quickly, like in a couple of minutes, to describe a kind of a scary, uh, doomerish uh, horror show um, scenario for this, um, for this conflict. Um, make it realistic, of course. Uh, you know, it has to be uh, within the realms of possibility, but... Um, you know, given it's Halloween, how badly could this go? Could we see, you know, Israel losing so badly that they release nuclear weapons? Could we see Israel losing so badly that it forces the U.S. involved to get involved? Uh, could we see the U.S. you know getting involved against their will? I mean, Neville Chamberlain wanted peace at Munich, but he didn't get it in the end. Uh, sadly for the entire world. Um, the US and the Middle Eastern nations might not want escalation, uh, but sometimes these conflicts take on a logic all of their own and the leaders and nations are corralled uh, toward each other, toward conf uh, conflagration. Um, so let's hear from you both, you know, just a couple of minutes. Let's not spend too long because I'd like to move on to other uh, theatres in the world. Um, on what would be a kind of a reasonable worst-case scenario here, and specifically what it would mean for Israel, the Middle East, for the United States, or for the world even. And then after you've both done yours, I'll give you mine. Um, I'll, I'll just go first, I guess. Um, I think we've talked about it on the show before. <clears throat> I don't see any potential for nuclear escalation in the Middle East. I think if, if um, Israel's, I mean, we've talked about it. Israel has kind of bad optics on this, you know, a good portion of the world is against them. And even in the West, it's very split. If Israel used nuclear weapons, 
that's it. It's over. They'll they'll become a pariah state, and you know they might. You, you could even imagine them being subject to sanctions and so on. I don't think they do that. The thing is that Israel only have incentives to use nuclear weapons if the Israeli state is under threat. That is, it's <clears throat> it is about to be like overthrown by you know Islamists or something like that. But Everything we've seen, and I really don't see it escalating, everything we've seen so far suggests that no one's really trying to overthrow the Israeli state. Um, and I don't think that's going to change. It will be very, very surprising if, that, if it got to that point. I don't think it will. I, I mean, there's a lot of rhetoric out of Iran and so on, but I don't, I don't think it'll get to that point. So I think realistic worst-case scenario is that the whole region goes on fire. And it starts with kind of a general insurgency, um, you know, by various groups. Something resembling ISIS, but with a very different purpose, could form. I think that is fairly decent likelihood. It could be a lot bigger than ISIS. It could be a lot more motivated than ISIS. It could be much more focused on specific goals than ISIS, which was kind of just in a weird expansion, expansionist, like quasi-state army thing. Um, I think that's definitely realistic. And then all the regional players, I don't think that they send in the army. I don't think the Turkish army is going to march across the Middle East. But they'll start backing their own factions to achieve their own goals. Everyone in this region has goals that they want to achieve. And so each of the factions, each of them back their factions to achieve those goals. And what that would end up, what, what that would mean, first of all, an absolute mess for America basically. America would, I don't think it would have the uh, capacity to keep the lid on this. And then second of all, the, uh, the outcome, I mean, not even talking through the, the mess that it would be, the lives lost, the refugee flows entailed from it to Europe, I mean, you can just imagine how bad it could get. Um, beyond that, at the end of it, the Middle East is carved up. The Middle East be- becomes carved up in a much more I would say natural way that the Middle East, as it currently stands, as your leftist professor in college will hammer into your head when you go in and you do something on the Middle Eastern history, he'll say it was created basically by the Brits and they carved it up arbitrarily. And there's some truth to that. There's some truth to that. Instead of that, various regional powers with their own goals relative to their own strength, carve up the region in a totally different way. And given how important the Middle East is, not least because of energy and so on, that could be really, really negative for the West moving forward. So we've already covered millions of different bad scenarios on the show with, you know, trade with China, uh, loss of uh, Russian hydrocarbons into Europe. I mean, some of these things have happened. Some of them are tending to happen. They're all very dangerous for Western living standards. We'll now add to the pile the Middle Eastern hydrocarbons, energy markets, so on, being so far outside of control of the West in a completely new, new neighborhood with new boundaries drawn, it, that is highly uncertain moving forward. Yeah, okay. So my, my sense is uh, in some ways less dramatic than Philip's, but in other ways more, I guess. I think for Israel... The political class, whether sort of they're doing this consciously or unconsciously, I think they're acting with the assumption that unless something changes, unless we reestablish deterrence, Mm -hmm. Israel won't exist in 20 years. Like 
a lot of people will leave because like the settler model will be non-viable like american aid bombs airplanes spare parts it's going to dry up uh, and so like for them in the in the short term i don't think anyone has any interest in trying to you know raise tel aviv to the ground or whatever because it, it might end up just like rhodesia and in fact like a rhodesian sort of end game to this for israel i think is the most likely um which is at some point like you're fighting militarily you're being pretty successful but then you sit down and you realize this is going to go on forever and eventually we're going to lose so like there's no point um so israel while it might actually sort of be the main villain in terms of escalating the temperature in the region is not going to be the country that gets hit the worst by the blowback that's going to be the us and for the us i think that like the the, the worst case scenario here <clears throat> is essentially like you're going to have a berlin wall moment and you like you might already have entered that territory on 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 the 7th because if you have these groups and particularly the iraqis who say like there's some massively gruesome event israel you know bombs kills a thousand people in a bombing or whatever you know you 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 have this a similar explosion of emotion that you saw with the hospital incident like one too many of those incidents you might have people say okay that's it like the the americans the americans are going to be sent home either on a plane or in a box and at that point you're going to have like these scenes of um if you remember afghanistan which was a huge sort of black mark on us prestige like the people that could be clinging to the airplane wings this time could be americans themselves because like the this base structure is so weak it's so exposed you might actually have like americans bearing the the actual brunt of imperial dysfunction and if that happens you're going to get two things you're going to get like a massive social political economic crisis like internally to the us and you're probably going to get like a massive military crisis like maybe even mutinies stuff like that like the us is going to go through its own version of what happened to the soviet union um in the early 90s like we are very close to that point the us can't really take any sort of dramatic uh public losses of face and being militarily defeated and then sent home um but but like all the all the elements for that sort of military defeat are already um present in the middle east and you have this massive political paralysis or paralysis and polarization which means that like centcom does not even have enough command staff because it's been blocked in congress over literally culture war issues like the american political class can't even staff its most important military command because wokeness on west point and possible dod funding for abortion so like 
at some point this house of cards for the US is probably going to collapse and the Middle East might give it a massive shove which it can't really survive in its present form. Yeah, I, I think my scenario is a kind of a synthesis of both of yours, but kind of looks at the consequences of that kind of position in that uh, this conflict drags on. The US feel obliged to allow Israel to try to secure some kind of victory in Gaza City, or something that they can claim as victory. Because that's urban warfare, it involves a lot of death, which is for the which for the Israelis will be a bit like, you know, people who sit and put coins in uh, slot machines. You know, the more coins they put in, um, the, the the more difficulty they have about getting up and walking away from the machine before they hit the jackpot. This drags on um, attacks from uh, Hezbollah and uh, Houthi militia and other kind of uh, Islamist militias in the region on uh, both Israel and U.S. bases in the region uh, continue and perhaps become more frequent. And ultimately, the U.S. feels it has to get involved. Uh, They appear to be making not a great deal of progress at first. And the political pressure uh, that you both uh, described gets to the stage where you know, Biden feels that he has to act strongly and defi- de- decisively and really start uh, going after, um, you know, both militias and perhaps even nation states within the region and also supporting the Israelis with the full strength of the armada that they've constructed in the Mediterranean uh, and perhaps also strong arm, trying to strong arm some actors in the region uh, into providing uh, basing um, rights as well for this process, which will, reco- will which would cause a huge diplomatic inc- incident, and people getting very frustrated and feeling very boxed in indeed, uh, and that leading to a much wider conflagration, which, given uh, Russia is a major supporter of Iran uh, and also Syria, uh, might start to drag Russia in and potentially even China as well. I think it's entirely within the realms of possibility where perhaps Biden doesn't want to act and his military tells him that they're not really in a position to act, but he feels that the, um, that the consequences of not acting strongly would be worse than the risk involved in trying to act. act. And equally, the, Isra- the, 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 you know, the, the Iranians and some of their proxies like Hezbollah also feel the same. They don't want to get the Americans involved. They don't want, you know, cruise missiles raining down on Tehran, even if ultimately it's not going to change their view. <clears throat> it's still something that they don't want. <clears throat> and yet, at the same time, um, they feel um, that not acting because of, say, U.S. involvement in attacking Hezbollah, for example, uh, is degrading their position uh, more than the, more than the uh, risk of acting. Um, I want to move next to um, the broader Black Sea area. We have the Ukraine conflict uh, underway, and we also uh, have certain issues uh, which also involve Iran, strangely enough, and also involve Russia, and also involve Turkey, um, in the Caucasus with Armenia and Azerbaijan. Um, Several things frighten me in this region. It, it, It seems that Um, The strategic momentum is with Russia. 
it seems that um, the West, it certainly doesn't have enough arms to send it now while this Israeli conflict is going on. But even without this, it was clear that the U.S. was running out of, uh, the U.S. and Europe certainly, but the U.S. also had run out of munitions to send Ukraine. Um, it seems Ukraine is having quite significant manpower problems. Um, and as I say, this is giving, uh, after the abject failure of Ukraine's counterattack, this is giving uh, Russia the, um, the strategic imperative. Unfortunately, it seems the West's thinking was predicated on a, a, a very strong conviction that the counterattack would succeed and they would be able to negotiate with Russia from a position of great strength as they were bombarding Crimea, for example, and as the land bridge had been completely severed between the Donbass and Crimea. Uh, therefore, they seem to be thinking that maybe it's time to, you know, take a loss and freeze the conflict. But that's not the only, you know, the only options here are not Ukraine win or a frozen conflict. There's a third option here as well, just logically speaking, and increasingly looking as if it might be in reality as well. That, and that third option is a Russian victory. How would the West respond to that? I mean, it really, it, it doesn't affect their core interest. It doesn't affect either Western European or uh, US core interests. But they did say that NATO credibility was on the line. They did say that this was a war for democracy and liberty itself. How difficult is that going to be able uh, to, you know, to walk back? Might they be tempted to escalate in Ukraine if um, the signs we're now seeing of Russia gaining the strategic, uh, the strategic momentum uh, turn into something concrete on the ground and undeniable? And the second point, of course, is the uh, Armenia situation with Turkey and Iran. Um, could that lead to conflict at all? Uh, Philip, perhaps I'll start, or, or let's start with Malcolm on this. We started with Malcolm first last time. Let's go with Malcolm again. All right. So regarding the, the fallout from Ukraine, I think that you're not necessarily even seeing that much um, what I was, what the kids would say, cope regarding the frozen conflict model. That was when the offensive was still going on, and people realized, like you know, the lines are not moving. There was a lot of talk of that, and there was a lot of talk of it, and then in in kind of people dismissing it as um, defeatism at the beginning of the year and the the end of two thousand twenty two. Today, you're mostly seeing silence, I think. And the problem here with admitting a defeating Ukraine uh, ties into a much bigger problem that the West has right now, which is kind of like, again, uh, to make that comparison, we're really like the Soviet Union in the last like two or three years of the Soviet Union, where like the, the actual sort of practical economic model is no longer functioning that well. Um, so we don't really have um, that to rely on, but also our core ideology and, and more importantly than just ideology, our entire sense of viewing the world is also collapsing. Um, so with North Korea, oh, sorry, with, with Ukraine, I'm getting to the North Korean part uh, in, in just a second. With Ukraine, 
you had this news bulletin that said that the nation of North Korea had um, furnished Russia with like three times more ammunition, artillery ammunition than all of Europe had given Ukraine. So like the entire might of Europe. And remember, just like a year and a half ago, people were talking about like Russia as this gas station, Russia as a smaller GDP than uh, uh, Belgium, blah, blah, blah. Like we're going to win because we're so high and mighty. Uh, we're part of the, the first world, the industrialized world, blah, blah, blah. Okay, yeah. Like nobody was even making fun of North Korea as being sort of economically insignificant because it, it, like it, it wasn't even on the radar. But at this point, people are forced to grudgingly admit that like, okay, if you compare the entire arms industry of Europe to the arms industry of North Korea, a country with 20 million uh, under like all of these sanctions, like the North Koreans, they just objectively won. And, you know, that in itself is not a catastrophe. Like people aren't dying because of that, unless they're Ukrainian soldiers, of course. Uh, But the problem here is just that for us, like the entire sort of legitimacy of our politicians is now in a state of very rapid collapse. And like that's going to be where the real earthquakes start. Um, because generally speaking, once you exhaust the sort of legitimacy of a system and of a ruling elite, uh, what happens then is that the system trudges along for a bit until some sort of new big crisis, like an economic crisis, uh, comes along. And then all hell breaks loose. So I think that the that's probably going to be like the direct result of this like so so i mean malcolm what 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 are the i mean you mentioned the real earthquakes start to come along what would they look like i mean i, I mean at the end of the soviet union you had a situation where not only had the people lost their sense of the legitimacy of the socio-political organization of the nation in which they were living in um, had you know they 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 they'd lost all of that, and I think that's clear. But even I think some of the leadership had lost it. Now in the West, I think it's quite clear with the rise of populism and um, you know a whole range of uh, elections that we've had and the general mood within Western Europe that we all can feel, and the US as well, that there has been a loss of the legitimacy of the you know, the government and institutions as well. And, you know, not just institutions like the judiciary, but also like the media. And that feels very last days of the Soviet Union-ish. But what about the second part of that, the kind of like the loss of will among the elites? I mean, how does that play out? And as I said, just generally, what are the earthquakes that you kind of mentioned there? What in concrete terms do they look like? I mean, one particularly dangerous one is if this crisis in the Middle East continues and you have an energy embargo on Europe. If you get an energy embargo on Europe at the same time that people are reading in the newspapers, oh, sorry, you know, Ukraine was a total disaster. 
Um, you know, a quarter of a million soldiers are dead, you know, 300,000, 400,000. We lied about all these statistics, by the way. We, we, we lied through the entire war. I hope you forgive us. Um, like, if you stack failure upon failure upon failure, or sorry, the sanctions, they also didn't help us. They just helped, uh, they actually helped Russia and they destroyed our economy whoops, sorry, forgive us. Like, if you get an energy embargo on top of that, of like these, of every, on top of every sort of public policy that like big ticket sort of geopolitical strategy the West has pursued, turning out to be uh, based on lies, you are going to get revolutions, um, quite a lot of them in, in, in Europe. And people say, oh, well, you know, revolutions, they never happen. That's just like doomerism or whatever. Yeah, well, you know, tell that to the Ukrainians. Because again, the only reason we're here um, discussing the failure of the war in Ukraine is because the Ukrainians had a revolutions. revolution. Like you have these polit political instability and like this sort of split in the electorate between East and West. And then you had a non-standard transfer of democratic power. Like these things happen all the time. They're, they're, they're as common as dart in human history. And uh, like we are fulfilling sort of all of the requirements to have them. And so you could have pretty much any sort of big event, like a really cold winter, a really cold winter at this point could itself do it, depending on how the governments handled it. Um, and so, you know, uh, when, when, when you have people studying forest fires, um, sort of, I don't know, like uh, what sort of people in academia study it, like the title, but for people who study forest fires, they're not actually like focused on, you know, match matches or campers who aren't that good at putting out, you know, fires when they heat their coffee or whatever. Like for them, they only really study the amount of fuel available and the um, like sort of environmental um, conditions that are in effect at any particular given time. Because to people who study forest fires, the truth is a spark will come. As long as the fuel is there, as long as the conditions are proper, you can just assume a lightning strike or a camper or something else. Like you can just assume that into being because something will happen that will set the fire forest on fire. And so that's, that, that's kind of the problem right now. There's so many different things that could trigger some sort of massive political crisis. Like the Russians could blow up a pipeline leading to Britain with a submarine and get away with it. And then suddenly Britain is, you know, up S Creek without the paddle. And that could itself have um, immensely like destabilizing effects for, for Britain. It's not going to be some sort of like, you know, Churchill isn't going to go up and hold a speech and say, like, we're all in this together. If, if you know, Britain's gas supply is um, sort of severely crippled.
So um, I guess I'll weigh in on that. I think I think to understand the response to Ukraine, or to at least kind of contextualize it, you need to kind of see where the West, where the Western mindset was when the war broke out. And I think I'll connect two things that aren't usually connected, but have always been in my mind. Um, after 2008, after the 2008 crisis, the, um, the West effectively lost its economism legitimacy, you might call it, right? And by that, for anyone who doesn't really get what I'm saying, I mean, like, what's the goal of life? What's the telos of the West, right? It's to have massive economic growth and you can get rich. If you want, you can go, you can go to Wall Street and get rich and everybody else will see gradually <clears throat> uh, rising living standards. That myth was largely shattered after 2008. And there was a lot of kind of reckoning. I mean, I was very involved in the um, economics reform debates at the time and so on. And what I noticed at the time, and it only really made sense in retrospect, was a real nostalgia for the wartime spirit of the Second World War. And this would go around kind of Keynesian circles. Like, they, it would be like, well, we can rejuvenate the economy like what happened after the Great Depression going into World War II if we could have the opportunity to take the gloves off with government, right? Because World War II effectively, for those who don't know the economic history, allowed Roosevelt to do what he kind of wanted to do in the 30s, massive government spending program, drag the economy out of the Depression. Um, and there was a lot of talk like, well, how would we get that done? What would justify that? And so on. And some of it was economic, but some of it was an elite, a political elite that had basically lost control, not only of the kind of economic system, the financial system and so on, but also of the narrative of the way that you justify your rule in a sense. And there was a real desire to see a moment like that. Well, they got their moment. They got their moment in February 2022. And if you remember, it's only a year and a half ago, but uh, newspaper headlines roll so quickly now that you can actually forget sometimes. Everybody thought this is our Churchill moment. I mean, everyone that supported the war. This is our Churchill moment, all in, give the Russians a bloody nose, something, 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 utopia, right? It's like the South Park joke with underpants nose. And, you know, anyone who understood anything was like, oh, not sure if that's going to work. But it gave this kind of it gave this kind of boost to the political class. And they really thought that this was their Churchill moment. Now, the fact that it hasn't turned out to be their Churchill moment in just about any way is one thing. OK, that was pretty predictable, which kind of leads me on to a second personal anecdote. When the Ukraine war looked like it was going to be lost, which was a long time before the counteroffensive for anyone that actually followed the war, I used to talk to a friend of mine who was in foreign affairs and so on. And he, I said, what's going to happen? What's going to happen when they, when they lose? And he said, you know, I've been going around for the past two years at every opportunity I can, raising with people, hey, we lost the Syrian war. And he said, no one really wants to talk about it. Um, the public have completely forgotten about it. The journalists have stopped talking about it and so on. And he said, They're gonna, that's what's going to happen. And that's exactly what we're seeing. Okay, the Hamas attack and the destabilization of the Middle East has given great headline cover 
to, you know, put Ukraine onto pages. Okay, fine. But even if that hadn't happened, this was inevitable. Pushing it under the rug was inevitable. The problem is Syria was never advertised as our World War II moment, as our Churchill moment. It was basically, you know, it was page three news most of the time, unless there was a chemical attack or something like that. So it was never advertised in the same way as Ukraine. We never saw, um, I mean, what flag would you put up? <laughs> what was the anti-Assad flag? I suppose we're not supposed to talk about that. Um, you know, you wouldn't see Assad go away flags. So I guess that would have been the equivalent. Outside of people's houses, we put Ukraine flags up everywhere. I mean, they're everywhere. And you still kind of see them kind of tattered and rotting every now and again, next to, a, um, next to something about the pandemic. Anyway, whatever. But, um, but, you know, when you get to, to make that your World War II moment and then your response is to pretend it never happened. I mean, that's, to even, that's, to even, that's before even considering the amount of materiel we sent, the amount of resources. I mean, we emptied the stockpiles on this. To, 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 we did try and turn it into a kind of a mini World War II and it failed. Well, just sweeping that under the rug... I'm not saying it won't work. Most people aren't thinking about Ukraine that much anymore. They were maybe a year and a half ago, you know, 14 months ago. They're not anymore. So it's not going to swing elections. The politicians can say to themselves, well, you know, we swept it under the rug. It was a loss. We have other things to deal with now. And no doubt they will. But it has a kind of a slow rotting effect, surely. I mean, everyone surely knows that we had this big war that no one was allowed to criticize, right? Because I mean, that really was the vibe. No one's allowed to criticize it. No one's allowed to raise questions. It's our World War II moment. We're going to commit all these resources. A lot of people are going to die. A lot of Western material is going to be destroyed. And then we just sweep it under the rug. I mean, let me... Here would be an interesting thing to look into. What was the Soviet response? after they pulled out of, of, of Afghanistan in the early 1980s. Was it similar? Was it, was it advertised? I know how it was advertised. It was advertised as kind of, we're going to civilize Afghanistan. Very similar to how the West um, uh, advertised the Afghan war. And they said, we're going to civilize Afghanistan. And then is, is what happened? They took a bunch of losses. They had their helicopters shot down. And then they just left and pretend it never happened. Because I suspect that probably was what happened. And the kind of memory of that lives on in the, in the brains of people like Gorbachev, who, who lose faith in the system because of it. So that feels to me like what's going to happen. Not what's going to happen, what is happening with Ukraine. Yeah, I recommend a wonderful book called um, Afghansi by Roderick Braithwaite about the experience of the, uh, not just the Soviet soldiers, but also the you know, the engineers and the propagandists that they sent to Afghanistan. And one of the things that's uh, quite remarkable um, to discover when you read that book is that everybody involved in the war in 1979 and 1980 <clears throat> understood that it was a horrible mistake, understood that it was likely to be a disaster, and understood that it really wasn't worth the risk given the kind of the paltry geostrategic prize that was Afghanistan. But as events kind of um, unraveled, they were kind of moved into this thing that they all understood was a huge mistake. Um, 
And almost from the beginning, they were looking for a way out. Now, that seems to me very different from the way that um, the West has viewed Ukraine. Um, if you remember, not only have they not looked for a way out, but they've, act, uh, you know, they've actively closed doors uh, to find a way out. They refused to negotiate in uh, December 2021. Now, whatever you think about the, the, the kind of the Russian offer, um, not making a judgment on that, maybe it was an awful offer that no Western leader could even uh, entertain. But the fact is that the West didn't entertain. They didn't even view it as a starting point for negotiations. Um, we now have pretty much as fact uh, that there was um, fairly ad at least advanced uh, negotiations between Ukraine and Russia in uh, March and April 2022 after the war had started and the West said, no, we refuse to negotiate and if you continue, you're on your own. Uh, so that was called off. Uh, so we've kind of shut down all of these doors and if at the end of it, it's cost us, I mean, you know, it, it probably cost upward of a trillion euros to the European economy. Um, aid to Ukraine, in, you know, including arms and economic aid, is the smallest portion of that. The largest portion is on the extra cost of, uh, of buying energy and also the subsidies that have been put in place for uh, consumers and uh, manufacturers and industry. Um, in order to mitigate that additional cost. Um, and, of course, the cost of inflation and lost employment. I mean, it's, it's, it's really almost certainly run into trillions just for the Europeans alone, less for the Americans, no doubt, given their own uh, energy situation. So if after all of that kind of effort, after weakening their own militaries hugely by emptying their uh, stockpiles to send to Ukraine, if after all of this cost... If at the end, you know, it comes out as a worse deal than they could have gotten in uh, April uh, 2022, and, and certainly worse than they could have gotten in December 2021, um, I don't know. I mean, like, for instance, nobody in Britain ever talks about the fact that the British Army lost its last two wars, one in Basra in Iraq and one in uh, Helmand, Helmand, Helmand in Afghanistan. Uh, that was just kind of swept under the carpet. It's not spoken about. Could they achieve the same thing here? I kind of doubt it. I, you know, eventually, um, you know, the intellectuals and the journalists will forget that they were also gung ho in favour of this. They, 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 they will forget that they were, you know, calling anybody who disagreed with policy a Putin apologist. They will forget all that and they will turn on their leaders. <laughs> They'll say, you made a terrible decision. This was an awful mistake. We should have negotiated. We shouldn't have allowed this to happen. We had Minsk too. Then we had a shot to negotiate. Then Zelensky had a shot to negotiate. We said, no, 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 all the way along the line. And this was a complete disaster. You know, people, you know, will remember. And if at the same time we have a recession, if, as Tinksorg mentions, we have a kind of an, a potential oil embargo, I mean, the last oil embargo, which was imposed in 1973-74 by the Arab nations in response to Western support for Israel during the Yom Kippur War, uh, led to a 300% increase in the price of oil. Well, goodness, if we get only a 50% increase in the price of oil now, we're talking about a serious recession. 
Um, so if all of that happens, you really could see a lot of ructions in the West. I would also draw people's attention to another potential disaster area since we're, since we're talking about uh, pretty scary, um, since we're talking about pretty scary and spooky um, uh, scenarios here. The other thing is, as the West tries to forget about the Ukraine mess, um, it, you know, it, it's entirely possible that Ukraine as a nation starts to generate their own equivalent of the German uh, stab-in-the-back theory that emerged after the, uh, the, uh, after the First World War and really, um, you know, helped, helped make um, interwar Germany a really uh, dangerous nation, I would say. You know, politically, it, it was divided and polarized and angry. Um, and, you know, here we have Ukraine on the doorstep of Europe, essentially. And if they feel that they've been abandoned, if they feel like the West has, uh, to paraphrase, well, to, to quote John Mearsheimer, Mearsheimer, led them up the primrose path, prevented them from negotiating, encouraged them to go after Russia, and in the end cost them, you know, hundreds of thousands of deaths and injury, um, a third of their GDP, um, a third of their population through uh, migration, and in the end is just kind of abandoning them to their fate. Surely, uh, surely there's going to be, you know, as much anger in Ukraine directed toward the West as there is toward Russia. And you have this uh, country with, you know, hundreds of thousands of hardened veterans, um, highly corrupt, uh, one of the biggest, uh, you know, arms dealing nations in the world, even before the war, now with lots of Western munitions. That that's kind of dangerous as well, uh, Malcolm Tinksorg. Sorry, say again. Uh, what what do you want me to? Uh, I, I got a bit distracted by someone actually calling me on the other phone. Hello. Yeah, sorry. I was just talking about. Um, I was just saying that. Um, you know, if the West does try to kind of brush Ukraine under the carpet, if it tries to kind of forget Ukraine and forget, you know, that it ever happened in the way that Philip Pilkington said, um, you know, you have this country who, you know, was encouraged to take on the Russians. The West kind of prevented it from reaching a negotiated settlement in March 2022. Um, it really pushed them to fight, fight, fight. It said they would support, be support to the end, said they would lead them to victory. Um, if they then just completely abandon Ukraine, yeah. um, you know, could there be a kind of like a stab in the back uh, theory like there was at the end of the First World War in Germany? And could that lead to a really dangerous political situation in Ukraine that kind of moves out into Western Europe? Yes. I mean, if you think about like one of the problems Ukraine has, it's that it's been depopulated um, because of people leaving the country to go somewhere else. I think that there's all the grounds for a really toxic dynamic here where, you know, Europeans say, you know, we're tired of paying for you because we have this economic crisis because of, you know, sanctions on Russia because of Ukraine. And Ukrainians saying like, well, you destroyed our country. 
like sorry that we're here in Poland or Sweden or whatever, but you you guys, you literally destroyed our country. You led us down the primrose path, as Mayor Scheimer likes to say. Um, I think that could lead to like a lot of violence, actually, and you know a lot of bitterness on 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 each side, and like it, I think this is much of a bigger danger than like the old bugbear that's being trotted around today, which I find like completely pathetic. Like this, the the, the scepter of uh, or, or specter rather of. Um, like the, the, the Muslims are going to bomb us in the London subway, whatever. Like at this point, if you have sort of a viable fight against the Americans or the Israelis down in the Middle East, if you're a guy who wants to blow up people, you no longer have to blow up people in the British subway. Like the British subway is not a strategic, like, you know, target at this point because we Europeans, we always thought of these people as like terrorists uh, because, you know, that's just how Muslims are. The problem with that view is that like this was something that was fermented during the pa- time where like if you hated American soldiers being in the Holy Land, um, you have you had to put pressure on the Americans. You can only like do something like nine eleven, for example, to illustrate that like we're mad. You should abandon these bases. The moment you can just go down there and blow up the American base, you don't have to ask them nicely or try to get them to mend their ways. I think people are going to do that. And so I think what we're seeing now in terms of Europeans discussing. Like the threat within. People are still stuck in, you know, 2002 or something. Nobody's discussing the problem of like, what will Ukrainians do? There's millions of them and they could be like really bitter at us for very, very like, you know, very basic, like true reasons. Um, Instead, people want to have this uh, fairly laughable discussion like, we're still in 2002 and like Ahmed, the dead terrorist is hiding like around every street corner, which I think is just another sign of how uh, sclerotic and decrepit we've become. Philip? Uh, yeah, on the on the post-Ukraine Europe situation, I think they're really interesting. I, I totally agree that I don't think the promises that have been made to Ukraine uh, will be capped uh, in terms of um, EU membership and stuff, um, because, you know, we, we're, we're going to have a recession. Now there's something going on in the Middle East. I mean, maybe some of the promises will be capped, but not 100% of them. That seems unlikely. I think the real thing, if we're talking about Europe, is that the Middle East situation... Um, I mean, let's put it this way. We've already discussed that the Middle East situation is uh, a mixed bag in America. Now, the majority of Americans support Israel. uh, The minority do not. The minority have disproportionate political power, right? We've already discussed that. In Europe, the situation is completely different. Um, Europeans are completely divided on the issue. Uh, European leaders have 
I mean, they seem all over the place at the moment. One time you'll hear one of them kind of signaling that they're going to take, you know, aggressive action. Macron's over there. And then the next you have these very kind of indifferent voices. Um, there's a lot of, as Malcolm said, uh, 2002-2003 redux. Uh, there does, it does feel like some European leaders are reaching for that kind of anti-terror playbook. Uh, I don't think it's going to pan out like that either. Um, I think as, as the situation becomes more clear, as the situation in Ukraine winds down, or doesn't wind down, Russia may do a very large offensive there and try and take Odessa, that's also a possibility, but whether the Russians move uh, at a more aggressive pace or whether it winds down, eventually it winds down, right? So either one of those two things happens and the Middle Eastern situation continues to deteriorate. What happens in Europe then? At a certain point, Europe is going to start questioning all of this. They already have with the China stuff. We've discussed it on the podcast a million times before. When America said, we're not doing business with China anymore, before they then turned around and said, actually, we take that back, de-risking, de-risking. When they said that, Olaf Scholz went over to China. They said, okay, we're not doing this. We're not getting on board that train. Um, something similar feels to me like it's going to happen here. After a failure in Central and Eastern Europe, yes, bitterness among the Ukrainians, which should be taken seriously, but also gradually bitterness among the Europeans, especially the Germans, who are seeing their industry being so disproportionately affected by high energy prices. All of that is going to come together. The Middle East is going to be on fire again, which the Europeans never really liked dealing with the Middle East. As we recall, they didn't get involved in the Iraq invasion. It was only uh, a couple of other countries that weren't in the EU. Well, the UK was in the EU at the time. Um, it's going to happen all over again. And Britain's going to, or not Britain, Europe's going to start questioning its identity, its place in the world. That's exactly what's going to happen here. And so again, once again, we see that the blowback from all of these events is coming on the post-World War II economic military system, NATO and Bretton Woods. That's where the pressure is going to be applied. Um, and... What would that mean? What I mean, what kind of outcome could you see as a as a kind of spooky Halloween outcome? Not um, beyond, you know, not a fantasy outcome, but something that is perhaps a reasonable worst case scenario, Philip. Well, I think. I mean, Malcolm mentioned revolution. I mean, you're, but you're the economist. That, I, mean. I wouldn't discount a serious political destabilization, but I'm talking about it at a slightly different level. You know, I'm talking about it, about what the elite try and do. Maybe they don't succeed if there is political turmoil and so on. Open to that. But what logical moves on the chessboard they make? I think the logical move here is Ukraine regret system uh, syndrome, which probably quietly goes around among the European elite. As deindustrialization bites, remember, deindustrialization is only really going to bite, like really hard when it's combined with a recession, which we're probably staring down in the next... 12 to 24 months in Europe at most. As that deindustrialization takes place, people are going to say it was all for nothing, we lost. Okay, that's really bad. Also, Middle East situation continues to deteriorate. Well, what's the worst case scenario there? From the point of view of the Americans, the worst case scenario, which I think is entirely realistic, is that Europe starts doing completely independent diplomacy in the Middle East. Maybe it even starts doing diplomacy that involves China in the Middle East. That seems like a very realistic outcome. 
Yeah, I agree with that. You know, it certainly seems that Europe might be the weak link with regard to all this. It's got a large, large Muslim population. Um, it suffered the most from the Ukraine war uh, economically. Um, it's got the most to lose from an ongoing China war. Um, speaking of which, <laughs> um, that is still going on in the background. Um, recently, the US uh, announced another round of tech sanctions on the high-end NVIDIA chips, which previously hadn't been included. At the same time, the Chinese have announced a couple of um, uh, chip chip breakthroughs. Um, so that economic war is ongoing. It appears to me, at least increasingly, that the Chinese have decided, look, this is moving toward conflict. We would prefer it didn't, but we need to start preparing and there are increasing signs that the Chinese indeed are preparing for that. Um, although um, we've seen a little bit of a dial back in um, really quite aggressive Western rhetoric last year and, and, uh, and actions, you know, around the time that um, Nancy Pelosi was visiting Taipei in her infinite wisdom, the, uh, you know, the general... Um, the general atmosphere that I was picking up from the Western press and, and people who knew the environment quite well was quite febrile in terms of uh, the China threat. Um, that's still there, I guess. Uh, maybe, uh, maybe the failure of the Ukrainian counterattack has kind of cooled their heels a little bit and maybe they're focused on the Middle East at the moment. But let's be honest here, China is the primary strategic focus and as soon as you know the Middle East thing is 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 blown over, fingers crossed, they're going to move back to the um, they're going to move their focus back to China. So, look, I know we're pushing two hours here, but for the last kind of fifteen minutes or so, let's have a talk about China. Um, that could easily deteriorate if the U.S. gets involved in the Middle East, if it starts using up weapons and munitions if it suffers some losses, either in terms of personnel or even in terms of some of their uh, capital military equipment like ships or aeroplanes, that would make the U.S. weaker again. It kind of opens a window for China to put pressure on Taiwan. Let's not forget, at the beginning of next year, in like five months, I think, six months at most, we have a presidential election in Taiwan. Um so, you know, if this Israel operation takes three or four months, it could finish and we could go right into a Taiwan election. Um, that's the next thing. You've written a lot about this, uh, Malcolm. Um, where could that lead to? What kind of horror shows could we have in the South China Sea? Well, um, first off, I think that uh, it doesn't like there's probably going to be a showdown in the South China Sea or in the region, it doesn't necessarily even have to be Taiwan. It could be like uh, a scuffle with the Philippines, for example. Um, because again, like the American logic here is like we, the empire is done if we are publicly seen to be uh, like, you know, writing checks that then turn out to bounce in, in a very, very sort of um, public way. So the U.S. needs to defend Taiwan. Again, it's not because of microchips. It's not because of, you know, shared values. Uh, it's not because of democracy or longstanding friendships. It's just because if 
people see that the U.S. security guarantee, like the U.S. is not in Asia to stay. It's being slowly evicted. Um, everyone that is an ally of the U.S. will start reconsidering their options. Like the South Koreans will look at the North Koreans and they'll say, wow, okay, we now see that the Americans are not trustworthy. Uh, we can't really have any plans that depend on, you know, American help against, you know, the rightful rulers of the Korean Peninsula, I would say. But that's just me editorializing. So that's the first problem here. It could be it could be Taiwan, but it could also be the Philippines or somewhere else. Um, the U.S. has to be ready to sort of fight over pretty much anything just to prove that it's still strong enough to, to be respected. The other problem is more intractable, which is that for Ukraine, you could make the argument, and I always thought that this was kind of, you know, uh, wish being the mother of thought, in, in a sense, it, or, you know, as the kids say, a cope. But the argument was, you know, Ukraine is a land war. This will be an air and sea war. So even if we empty our stocks of artillery ammunition and so on, that stuff doesn't really matter for Ukraine. Of course, this was always, you know, a, a, a argument which had some notable flaws. Uh, for example, like, you know, medium distance sort of... Uh, um, tube artillery, sorry, sorry, rocket artillery. Like you could use that against, you know, landing craft beaches. You could use normal artillery against that. Like the Taiwanese, if they have to defend against sort of a, a <clears throat> amphibious invasion, like, yeah, they need ground-based fires. Like they need ammunition for that. Um, but also Ukraine was being sent stuff like Stinger missiles, uh, which is, you know, man-portable um, air defense against helicopters and stuff like that. Um, there's no doubt in anyone's mind that uh, Taiwan needs those assets. <clears throat> but there is also a certain element of truth to the argument. The problem here is that what the U.S. is doing right now in terms of the Middle East, there's absolutely, absolutely no way you could, with a straight face, make this, those sorts of arguments. So um, the U.S. has two of its carriers in the Middle East right now. I don't see anyone saying, well, you know, we don't really need carriers around Taiwan. Like carriers, like how would they be relevant? Then, um, of course, like maybe this crisis blows over, you know, tomorrow, then those carriers can possibly then be uh, put in on, you know, sort of as a strategic reserve to, to go to Asia. But maybe the crisis doesn't blow over tomorrow. But the real problem, which is even worse in terms than like forced posture issues, is that, you know, the, what the Americans are really sending to the Middle East is our defense, uh, Patriot batteries, and um, uh, what's the word like t-h-a-a-d like um essentially a form of air defense against like ballistic missiles so the problem here is that like because the u.s is a fairly open country you can see 
um, you know, congressional appropriations and so on. Basically, how much money the U.S. intends, plans to spend on weapon systems uh, for, like, coming fiscal years. And so we can already see that, like, all of this talk about rearmament and so on, it's, 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 just, it's just a fantasy. Like, there's no money in the budget to buy more artillery shells, and there's no more money in the budget coming to buy Patriot missiles. So all the Patriot missiles being sent to the Middle East, they're probably going to be spent. Because again, U.S. bases are under attack right now. The Houthis in Yemen are launching missiles. And um, Jordan has requested a Patriot battery. Saudi Arabia has requested some Patriot batteries, I think. And they're actually using uh, those missiles to shoot down um, ballistic missiles and so on coming from Yemen. So the U.S. is spending this stuff. And, you know, a pack-free MSC missile costs something like 5 to $6 million before, like, recent inflation. Uh, so the U.S. is spending resources it knows it can't replace. And, like, it doesn't have the money to replace them. And it doesn't have the money, certainly not the money, to pay the manufacturers to expand the production lines. Like there's, there's absolutely no money for that sort of stuff in the West anymore at like anywhere. Um, So right now, all of these arguments about, um, you know, China first or like we can walk and chew bubble gum. (laughs) Like they were kind of believable in terms of Ukraine but now there's like now all that like even the pretense of that sort of stuff has collapsed. Like the the, the China first people in the U.S. those who advocate advocate for the U.S. focusing on on China, they have been defeated. Like they have literally been defeated. Their program is no longer relevant because the U.S. is surging resources that would be like as a baseline necessary in order to prevent the Chinese from just walking all over Guam or, you know, Kadena Air Force Base or whatever. Like you need a way to defend against Chinese missiles. And the lost reserves that the U.S. have of that sort of stuff, like they're rushing that stuff to the Middle East. So, yeah, China first has completely collapsed. And I don't think anyone in the U.S. is really... I think people know in secret that like if the Chinese go for Taiwan, like it's over sort of, we made our bed and then we're going to lie in it. But I don't see a lot of people talking seriously about that because it's so politically sensitive right now. Yeah. I'd, uh-huh. I'd kind of, I'd second that. Um, I've been following the uh, Twitter account of friend of the show Elbridge Colby, and uh, obviously he's the biggest proponent of the China First strategy. And uh, you can see he's having a very hard time. Um, I, I, I think the writing on the wall uh, is, is there for the China thing. The other thing I'd say in addition to that, um, obviously all that's true about the requirement of the same weapon systems, both naval and air defense in the Middle East. But beyond that, look, we had a year of so there are two groups around the china thing right there's the pure china first um people who think in terms of defense uh colby is the best example of that 
And I've always found them actually relatively credible. And then there's the crowd who want to destroy the Chinese economy through maximum American power Top Gun style, like the Top Gun equivalent, the economic equivalent of Top Gun. That seems to be the mindset there. Uh, lots of lawyers, few economists will be my assessment of, of, uh, of the uh, China, I don't know what you call it, the Chinese economic destructive model uh, policy. Um, well, so a couple of things about the Chinese destruct policy. Um, well, the main one is it's been running for nearly a year. Uh, Biden turned out to be a very unlikely candidate to enact these policies. Um, these policies were associated, to be frank, with a fringe of the Trump uh, team, uh, usually the more ideological ones. I think Peter Navarro was a big proponent of them. But it was seen as a fringe when Trump was doing it. Um, and somehow, I don't really understand the backroom dynamics on it, although I have some sense of it, uh, this crowd got in control of Biden's China policy. Well, we've had over a year of it. It's been an absolute disaster. Anyone who reads the headlines, usually put out by very credible sources, like the Wall Street Journal or Bloomberg, can see that every single sanctions policy on microchips, X, Y, and Z, has failed. Anyone in business, right, that has to deal with China, like, say, oh, I don't know, Elon Musk, knows the supply chain issues. And you can be sure that in private, they are constantly communicating these supply chain issues. Well, combine those two things. The economic policy, the economic containment policy around China is discredited. It's completely discredited. And how do you know it's discredited? Because two weeks ago, Gavin Newsom, who wants to take on Joe Biden in the primaries, and he might, or not in the primaries, they're hoping to get old Joe off the podium, just give him a shove and hope he falls into the crowd. And then Newsom comes on with his big glistening smile. Gavin Newsom went over to China. Anyone who follows politics should know what that means. He even like played basketball with all these little Chinese kids. Like it's very clear what he's signaling there. He met Xi Jinping. He's saying, reset on the China front. That economic containment policy was a pile of rubbish. It didn't make any sense. It's failed. We're moving on. The China economic containment people are going to have a very, very hard time getting back in the chair. Maybe with a Trump administration. But honestly, listen to Trump's talk around China recently. It's all like, Xi and I are great friends. It's all this kind of thing. Trump is a very, uh, how would I put it, flexible character. And he, he usually knows which way the wind's blowing. So all that stuff is done. And then on top of that, what's left is the kind of Colby, China first, you know, I've always found it a lot more credible. You know, that's where you should focus your geostrategic interest. Maybe it is. I think the show has become increasingly critical of that stance as the world changes. But in theory, at least if you rewind about five years ago, maybe 10, it kind of made sense. That's all collapsing now too. Because as we said at the start of the show, the underlying reason is, America's overextended. It's an overextended system, empire, call it what you will. So it just feels to me like the Chinese thing is a dead letter. The one thing I'd say is it'll be very interesting to watch the Taiwanese elections. I think there was some expectation that if the anti-China party had got in charge in the election, which is, as you said, I think six months or something like that, that there might, something might happen. 
that there might be some push to declare independence, something crazy could happen. That's still worth watching. But is the energy there? Is the capacity there to get behind all that? Having seen the failed economic policies, having seen that all these air defense systems and naval vessels going to the Middle East, having, and by the way, one core thing, having lost a lot of your constituents in Congress, because the very same people who are really anti-China in Congress are incredibly pro-Israel. They tend to be right-wing Republicans, and they care more about Israel than Taiwan. That's for sure, because the Taiwan and China thing is a relatively new issue for them. Israel's generational. So I think all that stuff's dead. I know we're supposed to give some kind of doom scenario, and something could really kick off. So I suppose the doom scenario is something accidentally kicks off because the gears have already been set in motion, and the U.S. is just completely unprepared to deal with it. Yeah, just to like that's actually probably the most likely outcome of this. Uh, it, it kind of depends on a couple of factors, but there's a massive disconnect between American politicians and like the American military, um, and so you will have people in the political class saying like, okay, if we wanted to, we could just flatten Iran tomorrow. Like we could invade Iran. It's no problem. And then, you know, the people from the Pentagon are just listening to that and sort of, you know, trying to contain their laughter or their, you know, screams of panic or whatever. Well, you could have a similar situation with regards to Taiwan, where the U.S. is simply not prepared. Um, politicians say, well, you know, do it anyway. And then the U.S. just sort of enters into a fairly like embarrassing conflict where it's doesn't even really get to the starting line. You know, Kadena Air Force Base is sort of attacked. Um, Guam is attacked. And Americans realize, okay, well, now we no longer have any sort of infrastructure to bring up fuel to our ships or whatever. Like, we can just throw in the towel right now. Uh, any sort of conflict where the U.S. either sort of walks away because it admits, like, sorry, we're not strong enough for this, or where it tries to enter the battle but then gets scared off because it's just not prepared, um, that would be, you know, a like French Revolution, you know, calling the States General tier historical event in terms of U.S. internal political dynamics. And that is actually really, really likely um, that the U.S. tries something that writes a check that it doesn't really have the capital to, to cover. Yeah, um, I mean, of course, there's a worse scenario in that, you know, the U.S. goes all in and, um, you know, seeing its losses and um, suffering in the way it is and, and, and seeing the fact that those losses don't just mean it getting kicked out of the South China Sea or the Western Pacific. They also prevent it from projecting power elsewhere in the world for a certain period of time. And at the same time, seeing you, you know China rise to be a, a regional hegemon on par with the U.S., 
<clears throat> you know, the U.S. could get, you know, the political pressure at that stage would be huge within the U.S. And I mean, I don't think it's beyond people to start acting very irrationally indeed. Um, look, guys, just before we go, um, I promised people that I would ask uh, a couple of questions. Uh, the first comes from um, somebody called Chapter, uh, at I... Uh, Bello Braggin, Bello Braggin. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that correctly, but Bello Braggin um, asks um, for your view. Uh, I guess we can start with Philip on this one. For your view, Philip, on the energy situation for the EU in the coming five years. Um, I mean, the energy situation is basically baked in at this stage, um, unless something. Uh, changes dramatically, we're going to uh, have very high energy prices in Europe because we'll be relying on LNG. But given what we've already said about the collapse of the Ukraine war, probably, you know, an amount of bitterness among European leaders and maybe other parties like the AFD getting increasing vote share by criticizing the sanctions, I think there's every chance that those sanctions are put to bed in the next five years, actually which will be a real game changer and uh, will be as geostrategically important as it will be um, energy-wise. I mean, uh, not, to, not to put too fine a point on it, but would the Nord Stream blow up a second time? I don't think it would. Well, quite. Um, yeah, I agree with that. I mean, what you know, what people realise that you know didn't don't seem to realise is amid all of the backslapping of last year and and uh, this year about how you know Europe has defeated the energy weapon. Well, yeah, they've you know they've filled their supplies and they've got enough to um, you know supply you know keep the houses warm and the electricity turned on, but at what cost? You know, they've massively increased the use of, you know, the very dirty lignite coal. But in addition to that, they're, you know, they're just spending a large amount more on liquefied natural gas than they were, pre uh, you know, from on Russian pipeline gas. And in the same way that I've said this a few times on the podcast, you know, everybody look up uh, Multipolarity, the podcast, um, do subscribe. It's worth listening to for 45 minutes every week. Uh, but as, you know, as I've said many times, if, if tomorrow I said to all United States businesses that they were going to have to start paying their staff 40% more across the board, like every member of staff from the CEO down to the person who sweeps the factory floor has to be paid, has to be given a 40% pay rise. Well, everybody would accept that that is going to seriously damage um, competitiveness, uh, the competitiveness of U.S. industry in the world. It, you know, it obviously is. It's going to lead to inflation. It obviously is. And yet nobody seems to be making this point in Europe yet. Um, it, you know, the fact that they're paying 40 50% more for the energy, which along with labor is one of the three big uh, inputs for any uh, business, um, seems to have uh, missed the point. You know, they haven't defeated the energy weapon. It, it's just like acid, you know, uh, dissolving away slowly over time their industry. Um, one more question before we go, moving right back to the beginning, um, from somebody who's called Slug Life, which um, seems uh, very apt for Twitter. Um, his uh, handle is at is this hell 
one. Um, perhaps it is, yes. Um, how likely is it if the U.S. is in retreat in Syria that Turkey goes into the SDF territories in force? Could there be shots fired between American and Turk soldiers? Um, Tinksorg, Malcolm, is it possible that if the U.S. starts to leave Syria um, and the protection of the, uh, you know, of the Kurds therefore disappears, um, is it possible that um, you know, uh, Turkish forces re-enter northern Syria? Is it possible that the U.S. kind of wants to prevent this? Um, is it possible, you, you know, where, you know, the Americans look weak in the area and the Turks start taking advantage, or is that beyond the realms of possibility? Are we not going to see things go that far? I do think that, like, the the uh, possibility of the Turks, you know, concertedly attacking American forces is very, very low. Um, you know, you've had these incidents, like... Uh, Turkish F-16s shooting down a a Russian plane over Syria, for example, uh, which happened, what was it, like three years ago now? Maybe more. Um, and this was kind of a big incident. Like the Turks were mentioning, you know, triggering Article 4 uh, of the NATO Defense Treaty, but like nothing really came of it. Like the, the Russians got quite upset and they had some like sanctions or like they took some sort of economic action. But, um, you know, fences have been mended at this point because of the, the developing geopolitical worldwide situation. I think it's fair to say. As far as the Turks moving in on the Kurds, I mean, that's certainly not impossible. Uh, it's very hard to, uh, you know, the, the, the watermelon sultan at, Erdogan, he is a quite mercurial politician and it's quite hard to say exactly where, uh, what opportunities he will jump at. But I do think that um, like the Kurds are in a very awkward situation right now. Uh, and were the Americans to withdraw their sort of patronage, that could have like very, very dangerous consequences for them, honestly. Um, so I, I, sh I wouldn't dismiss it at all. Um, I don't think the, the Turks have any reason to sort of go aggressive against the Americans, but against the Kurds, yeah, it's definitely within the realm of possibility. Uh, one more question has just come in, and then we'll wrap it up. We've been at this for two hours now. Um, somebody asks, um, how long is it before um, the uh, Arab nations and Iran uh, say enough is enough with Israel and start giving uh, serious support or reacting uh, in a more serious way, either... Um, I don't know, uh, providing military support to, um, you know, Hezbollah or making, um, uh, or, e you know, economic uh, steps like a kind of an oil embargo or a limited oil embargo. Is that going to happen or is everybody in kind of very careful uh, de-escalationary mode now? Um, is, you know, is there a chance that we'll get some kind of 
uh, escalation if things go too far? And if so, what would that point be? What would you know? What would have to happen in Gaza for uh, the Middle Eastern nations to say, "Look, enough is enough. We're not tolerating this anymore." I mean, my reading on it is that the is that the um, countries surrounding Israel want to see how much they can grind, grind Israel down with doing a minimum, uh, you know, minimum spend in effect. That 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 would be my reading on it because the the point is, like, logically speaking, you can allow the situation to grind on as it is, or you know, step it up a little bit maybe, and see what happens, and then you can you know make a different move later down the line. If you make the big move first, well, then you can't really take it back, can you? So I think there's a real kind of minimum spend uh, approach here, somewhat similar to what the Russians did in Ukraine, arguably, uh, at the beginning. Um, in terms of could it escalate? I mean, of course it could escalate. I mean, there's absolutely no doubt about that. And it might, as we talked about at the beginning of the show, inevitably escalate. What would be the red line for an oil embargo? That's a good question. Um, I'd say two things. First of all, purely military. Um, you know, if Hezbollah was under threat, it feels to me like you might have to, they might, they might feel the need to step it up, especially if the U.S. were attacking them using naval vessels or something like that. The other thing to take into account is if a recession, or should I say when a recession comes, and again, we're pretty close to it now, uh, can't really call the day, but it's in the next year or two, I think. Um, if a recession occurs, oil prices are going to go down. The Saudis know this, the Russians know this. It's happened before. So there could actually be an economic incentive to do something like an embargo or an embargo light where you do it and you get a bit of a twofer, right? You, you get the price of the oil to firm up, possibly dramatically, and at the same time, you say to the you know, Arabs and the Muslims in the region, basically, look, we're doing something. So that, I think, will be one to watch as well. And just really quickly, although that will be picking the price up in a recession, maybe to where it is now, it's a lot harder to weather $90 to $100 to $120 oil price in a recession than it is in growth. I mean, effectively, what you have is horrible stagflation. And it could be, as Tinksworth is talking about, very destabilizing politically to have those two forces at work. So, But everything's on the table. I mean, we really don't know where this is going to go. If we've learned anything from the past 18 months, on this podcast especially, that bad things seem to happen almost constantly and they tend to happen faster than even pessimistic people think they will. Uh, I can just add to this uh, sort of to clarify like what the situation is right now because uh, you mentioned like de-escalation. There's no de-escalation in the Middle East right now, maybe outside of, you know, the Emirates trying to get everyone to realize that like Israel is great or whatever, like we should welcome the Americans. But like the speech by Sayyid Nasrallah was a speech that said we had been threatened by the Americans that they were going to bomb us on the 8th of October. They told us don't attack Israel or we will attack you. Like we will flatten Beirut. And then Nasrallah said, you know, we received the threat, but we don't care. Like, we have continued attacking Israel and will continue to do so from now on. 
And if the Americans try to attack us, we're going to sink their ships. Like, we don't care. And if the um, Israelis say, well, you know, we can level Beirut. Like, we have enough bombs to, you know, kill every civilian in Beirut. Well, we have enough missiles to do the same to Tel Aviv. So unless you try that, we won't kill every civilian in Tel Aviv. But if you try to level Beirut, you will get the same treatment. So what the speech actually did was establish a sort of the rules of the road here in terms of like, this is why you shouldn't escalate against us just because we're going to keep attacking you and we're going to keep attacking you more and more in the days ahead. Don't get any ideas because like, we're not scared of any of your sort of super destructive capabilities here. So this war on the Northern front is just, it's just heating up. Today was the first day that they basically used their more heavy, you know, with warheads of several hundred kilos, like surface-to-surface missiles, which they hadn't used before. And a couple of days ago uh, was the first time they used, like, these Iranian suicide drones against bases. They hadn't, you know, they had them in inventory, but they hadn't used them. So Hezbollah is, like, you know, like, well, a real-time strategy game or something where you work up the tech tree, like they're progressively fielding heavier and more destructive capabilities and using them against Israel. So we're on a path of escalation right now. Unless something changes, things are going to get more brutal. And as far as like, you know, the rest of the Arab world, like putting their foot down, a lot of rulers don't want to put their foot down. But they are slaves to events. If you get some sort of massive, uh, massive sort of eruption of anger and threats of violence against cowardly Arab rulers, which you saw with the uh, bombing of the hospital, uh, that's going to be what drives um, like the rulers of Jordan, for example, towards taking some sort of new escalatory step. It's, it's going to be like the, the, a social contagion, we could almost call it, triggered by some scene from Gaza. And it's very, very hard to know what sort of event triggers that social contagion. Um, it's just like a forest fire. Like you have all the fuel and then you're kind of waiting for a lightning strike. Um, we're in a situation now where another lightning strike could come and it could, you know, turn the situation on its head. Like that already happened once with the hospital bombing. It could happen again tomorrow or next week or something. But it's probably not that far away, I don't think. Right. Well, listen, guys, um, unfortunately, there are a couple of more questions left, but I think we've been at this for uh, about two hours and 10 minutes already. My wife wants to spend uh, Saturday evening with me. I'm sure cool guys like uh, Philip Pilkington and uh, Malcolm uh, Keune have got thrilling and cool and exciting things to do on a Saturday evening. And I'm sure all of our listeners have as well. Um, guys, uh, please listen to our uh, latest podcast. It's available on YouTube and all podcast apps. You can find it by looking uh, for uh, Multipolarity, the podcast. Uh, there are also links in our Twitter X feed. 
Uh, before we go, Malcolm, um, where can people find you? You write uh, very eloquently and uh, with great erudition for Contact Mag. Uh, do you have anything that you want to point uh, listeners toward? Malcolm? Okay, yeah, sorry. Uh, I, I do write for Unheard sometimes as well and for the New Statesman. Uh, and me and Comrade Philip here have a essay coming out for American Affairs. So, you know, uh, I get around at least somewhat, like in different publications and so on. And, and on Twitter, I mostly shit post about North Korea, which is not to everyone's taste, but, you know, someone's got to do it. Well, it's your much beloved uh, alter ego, uh, Malcolm, the the great Tinksorg. So, um, <laughs> look, guys, uh, I'd like to thank everybody um, for listening this evening. Uh, we hope to do more of these spaces in the future, perhaps once a month, if we can get uh, Mr. Pilkington um, on board with that idea. But uh, for now, have a lovely weekend. Thank you.